Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Before I wrote my first book, When a Woman Does Something, I, that's not the title, I just can't remember, I blanked, it's something about faith. Oh, when a woman lets go of her fears. Okay, I remembered. So anyway, I was, I was contracted to write this book, and all of a sudden I'm like, I've never written a book. I don't know anything about writing a book. So I called Harvest House, and they flew me up to Eugene, Oregon, which is really great. I have a friend who works for Alaska Airlines. She arranged my flight. I flew into Eugene, and then it was really exciting because after I had these meetings, I was going to fly to Santa Rosa where my son Char used to pastor. And it was gonna be my very first time to hear my son preach. And I, that was like, that was it. That was like the ultimate, couldn't wait to hear him preach. Because every time we would go up there, he would have Brian preach. And I love Brian, but I wanted to hear my son preach. You know what I mean? It's like, honey, can you just sit down and listen this time? I wanna hear our son. So. As it was, I got through those meetings, and a, um, I got through those meetings, and I was doing my devotions, and my devotions fell in Luke 16. Now, in Luke 16, Jesus tells the parable of this um, steward who's not a good guy. And this steward, what he does is he finds out he's going to be fired, so he goes about and he He goes to all those who are in debt to his benefactor, his employer, and he says, you know what? Let's just lower that debt. Instead of owing five bushels, you'll only owe three bushels. And he goes and he lessens all the debts that everyone owes. And Jesus said, learn a lesson from this unscrupulous steward. He knows what to do with money. And he knows that when he's fired, He's going to have to seek employment elsewhere. So he is making provision for when he leaves this job. And I remember saying to the Lord, great parable, not quite sure what it means, but I've read it. I took a few notes. Ever have that when you're reading the Bible and you're like, I like it. I don't know what it means, but I like it. And so I kind of did that. And... I remember I, I, uh, an ice storm blew into Eugene and shut down the airport, and I was a mess because I had all these plans to go hear my son preach. I didn't know what to do. Called my friend. She said, look, I've got you a flight in Portland. Well, nobody's going to Portland. She's like, no, you can get a shuttle to Portland. I called every shuttle that was in the phone book. Remember phone books? And there was no shuttle. I couldn't find a shuttle. Finally, I just felt this peace, like the Lord says, I've got this taken care of. Went to sleep that night, woke up around 11. I go to sleep around 7 or 8. Woke up at 11, which is the middle of the night for me, and felt led to go to the internet, look up something on the internet. Found a Turkish guy who said he had a fifth wheel, and he was shuttling some students to Portland, and he would pick me up in the morning because his car could make it through the ice storm. I was like, hallelujah, felt this peace, slept for the rest of the night, got up in the morning, waited for him. He came and picked me up in his little um, minivan with the fifth wheel. And I get in, there were some students in the back. 
And he said to me, what were you doing here in you know, Eugene? And I said, oh, I'm actually writing a book. I was learning how to write it. What on? I said, actually, I'm writing a book on faith and how to believe in God and not to give in to your fears. And he's like, oh, are you a Bible woman? I said, well, I love the Bible and I sometimes teach the Bible. Oh, are you a praying woman? I said, I am a praying woman. And he says, I'm a Muslim. You're like, dang. And uh, he says, but there's a praying woman who lives next door to me. And he went on to tell me the testimony of the praying woman next door. She had come to the United States as an illegal um, alien. She's, she's Mexican. And she was absolutely destitute. And she found herself on the steps of this church. This church took her in and loved on her. And because of their love and their kindness, she received Jesus. And then they helped her to get her citizenship. And now, at that point, she was head of the prayer ministry of this church. And he said, this woman, when she prays, God answers. He answers. So every time I do one of these trips, I call her up and I say, pray for me. And she sometimes comes to our house and she prays with my wife every time I'm in danger. And God has kept me safe because of that praying woman. You praying woman? Yes, pray right now. This is very dangerous. <laughs> and I looked to the side and sure enough, there's cars off on each side that couldn't drive the black ice. So of course I prayed. So we stopped at a market, a bathroom break, and I had to get money for the ride to pay him. And the Lord spoke to me, I want you to get, I think it was um, $80 extra. And I'm like, Lord, you see this account. There's $1,000 in this account. And the Lord said, but I provide for you. Just do what I say. So I got the money out. We're in the car. We get to the airport. And the Lord begins to speak to me in the car. I said to use unrighteous mammon for my kingdom. This is what I mean. So we get out, and he tells me how much. And I give him the money, and he's pulling my suitcase out. And then I took $40, and I said, and this is for you, because I'm a praying woman. And because I know this was dangerous, and I'm so thankful. And he looks, and he's kind of shocked. And then I said, and this $40 is for your wife because she prayed with the praying woman next door and because she let you come and pick me up and endanger yourself, and I want this to go to your wife. He goes, it will, it will. And then he says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus bless you. Your God your Jesus, he got us here safely. Let him bless you. Be blessed by Jesus. And I said, I am, and I plan on it, but may you come to know my Jesus. He goes, I think I am. And then we left, and I got my flight, and my son picked me up at the Oakland airport, and I got to hear him preach. And oh, I love his preaching. I love his preaching. But that was the day that the Lord showed me how I could use unrighteous mammon for the kingdom of God, for his glory, to set an example to this man. Because, you know, God is able to provide for me. 
But this man, money was so important to him. And for me to give him that extra, because I know Jesus set such an example. In the same way, Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10, is exhorting Timothy on how the believer is to give God glory or set a unique witness by his attitude towards work and his employer. Secondly, by obedience to the Lord's way. And the Lord's way is the way of love. And finally, by the way the believer, his perspective on money. Now, what we're talking about this morning, this is sticky subjects, especially for Americans to talk about. We are rugged individualists, and we believe that our money is our money. We emphasize our rights. I have this right. I have that right. You can't talk to me like that. You can't pull in front of me like that. I own this lane that I'm driving in. You know, we tend to be like that. And it's hard to share our money, especially with the government. But Paul begins his instruction to Timothy about work and about a slave's attitude towards his work and his employer. And he tells these slaves that they are to show respect to their masters. Now, before we go any further, a couple of points just to... Clarify, in those days, a servant or a slave was not like um, our picture of how slavery was in America. In those days, slaves were either a conquered people, not by race or ethnicity, it's just who was conquered, or indebtedness. If you were in debt, you sold yourself into slavery so you could pay your debts, or it was survival, it was a job, it was employment, and some 80% to 90% of all the people living in the Roman Empire considered themselves slaves. So it's different. The Bible never condones slavery, but the Bible does teach us how to live godly and victorious lives within the constraints of unjust and unchristian society. That's what the Bible, so therefore, because the Bible just says, are these your circumstances? Here's how to live godly. It doesn't condemn the circumstances we're living in. You know, it says, you know what? There's no hope for this world and the governments of this world. That's why Jesus has to come and take everything down and reign because men will never get it right. But until Jesus comes, this is how you live. This is your perspective. This is your demeanor until the coming of Christ. See, we don't put our hope in government or the things of this life. We put our hope in Jesus and we say to others, one day it's all going to be different. One day everything's going to be all right. I'm going to put this off to the side because I told you I have Meniere's, right? I have the ringing in my ears because the mics were too close. But this is, this is how I got some exercise. The Bible, again, teaches us how to live in the constraints of the society we're in, whether it's just or unjust. 
to put Paul's instructions in our situation. Paul is exhorting employees to respect their bosses and their company heads, no matter how immoral, unscrupulous, or, or bad their employer is. It's saying to respect even you know, unjust authorities. Respect. Do your work. Do your work as a Christian. This is so relevant because now in the society, the trend is to distrust every institution. That's the cultural trend we're in. Whether it is Apple or universities, Google, government, Amazon, and even churches. It's to distrust and come up with all sorts of conspiracy theories. And let me just say this, conspiracy theories on, are on each side. There are vaccinated people that have conspiracies about the unvaccinated, and there are unvaccinated people that have conspiracies about the vaccinated. There are masked people who have conspiracy theories about the unmasked, and unmasked people who have conspiracy about the masked. You know, you've got the liberals that say, we're pro-choice, but everyone should be vaccinated. And there are the people that say, we're pro-life, but we believe that no one should be vaccinated. So you know what I mean? Seriously? Do we enter this fray? No. What do we do? We do it Jesus' way. What's Jesus' way? I love you all. <laughs> I love you all. I just felt this way. I did this because I felt the Lord told me to do this, but it does not, it's not a judgment statement. It's not a statement to say you're less than. Respect and do the work of your employment for a non-believing boss so that the word of God and his doctrine, the Lord's message, his ways will not be maligned, discarded, or criticized. That's what it means by blasphemy. That it won't be maligned. That, well, look, I heard about Christians, but you should have seen the way Bob was at work. Or, you know, there's, there's no way. If that's a Christian, I don't want to be one. Or criticized. For a believing boss, just because they're a Christian, don't go slack. Don't take advantage. Don't ask for extra days off because they're so nice. Rather, serve them because those who are benefited by that Christian employer are believers and beloved. Moving on, bottom line, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I don't know how old I was. I think it was like maybe 14 or 15 when I realized I could do dishes to the glory of God. I mean, even dishes. And it made such a difference when my mom would say, clean the kitchen. It was like, oh, okay. I used to feel like I had to have an emotional experience to everything. Well, I don't really like dishes. You know, and, then, and so I really don't feel motivated to do dishes. And then when you're just like, I'm doing this for Jesus, it changes your attitude, it changes your outlook. See your work as an opportunity to radiate the love of Jesus, to exemplify what the Christian life looks like in serving God. I think about Nehemiah, who in the Old Testament, he was, uh, he was employed by the Persian administration, 
and yet he was the best cupbearer. In fact, he was such a great cupbearer that when he went before the king to ask permission to go to Jerusalem and help his people, the king granted it to him, even with an armed guard and all the supplies he would need. And when he came to Jerusalem, he came as an administrator, not a spiritual head, but as an employee to help Jerusalem build the walls back. And when he would pray, he always prayed, Lord, remember me. Remember what I've done. And I think a way to paraphrase his prayer was, Lord, make it count. Lord, will, will you count my work as glory to you? Will you use it? Will you multiply it? Will you strengthen it? This included, Lord, will you bless this right attitude that I've had even toward the opposition, that I didn't meet with them, that I didn't compromise, that I didn't fight against them? He said, I'm not fighting you. I'm too busy building a wall for God. His integrity toward his brothers and sisters that he wouldn't take bribes, or his endeavors for the good of Jerusalem, all he did. He asked God, remember this. Jesus told us that God who sees in secret, God who knows how difficult your boss has been, how ridiculous the workload, God who knows all the unfairness, sees it and will reward you openly. Paul orders Timothy to teach and exhort these things among the Ephesian believers, these things are so essential to the witness of the church and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. These things are essential that we get this down. I was reading an article by Tim Keller the other day, and he was talking about what a bad witness right now the church has to the world because they're seeing the church as upset and angry and polarizing. And when they think of January 6th and the storming of uh, Washington, D.C., they see that as what the church is capable of doing, what the church wants to do. And, you know, they think that all church members are gun collectors and, you know, got a basement full of ammunition. This is how the non-believers are beginning to see the believers. And Tim Keller was saying, the church has got to get beyond this bad rap. And the only way to do it is by living Christ-like lives. The only way to get beyond that bad witness is to live like Jesus. So these things have to be taught and encouraged. Why? Because our natural inclination is, let's take Washington down. <laughs> That's our natural inclination. Let's protect ourselves. Let's build walls. Let's protect ourselves from the evil in this world rather than let's live like Jesus. Set an example and draw men to Jesus Christ and to the forgiveness and transformation that is in Jesus. This morning I was reading Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of 
God unto salvation to those who believe. He's saying that to the people in Rome who are living under Nero and such awful corruption. He says, I'm not ashamed to tell you about a carpenter in Jerusalem, in Israel, who is the Messiah, who died a shameful death, but he died for our sins. And I'm not ashamed to say that same carpenter is the son of God who rose on the third day, who is coming again. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. Because when men harness that, when they believe it, when they receive it, when they say, Jesus, help me, they're transformed. The power of God comes in and it changes it. See, when you're storming and when you're doing these other things, you're trying to change the outside, but men are still going to hell because their hearts are not right with God. Maybe your life gets easier, looks easier, but it's not. We need to live like Jesus. Now, Paul warns in verses three through five, they're going to be people who do not like this perspective. They don't like the perspective on obedience to masters, on respect. They want to go to war. They want to get everyone all worked up. And he says, there will be people, and this is in the church that will teach otherwise. They will teach non-cooperation They will teach setting an example of war and disrespect. They will not consent to wholesome words or nutritious, beneficial words that promote spiritual health. And he says, the words of Jesus. Hear these words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What's that mean? That you might look like your dad. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, We, as believers, are called to be nice to everybody. Why? Because Jesus lives in us, and he is kind. In fact, there's a scripture that I love in Isaiah, and it says, the Lord waits that he might be gracious. Don't you love that? The Lord waits that he might be gracious. I think of the prodigals and how God waits and waits so that he might be gracious and receive them when they come back in. These other teachers, they oppose the way of love, the way of respect, and the way of service. And Paul says they do this because they're proud. They're arrogant. Don't you like the way I said proud? I like that. Proud. And they cannot be corrected. Have you ever tried to to just, like, help a proud person? Like, you're going the wrong way. I want to go this way. You know, proud people are just... They don't listen to reason. And they're, they're insulted that you even tried to help them. I don't need your help. And Paul says they know nothing. They don't have spiritual insights. They don't realize how off they are or how disenfranchised they are from Jesus and the way of Jesus. He said these people are obsessed They're preoccupied. They're hyper-focused. They live for disputes and arguments over words. As a side note, 
I know a man who calls himself a Christian who was let go from his job when his former employee tried to tell him, one, you're slandering, that's wrong. You don't have the right information. And then he had this. He said, the Bible says that the servant of God must not quarrel. You know what this guy had the audacity to say? That's not Greek. That's not the right interpretation in Greek. Oh, yes, it is. This guy doesn't even know Greek. And and he said, no, the right interpretation is we're supposed to quarrel. We're supposed to go to war. Like, no, that's not. You know, he had this idea like, well, if you read it in Greek, it says something totally opposite of what it says in English. No, what it says in English is pretty much exactly what it says in Greek. Almost exactly what it says in Greek. The fruit of the ministry of these arrogant opposers their, their opposition to godly living, especially their opposition to love and truth and respect and kindness, is that they're envious. They want what other people have. They're full of strife. They're always angry, and they always have somebody that's the enemy. They're reviling. They throw out accusations. They slander. They're always trying to pick a fight. And they're full of evil suspicions, conspiracies. Like, that person, if you really knew them, like, I know them. No, they, they might look like this, but behind that, there's something. I think I told you that years ago, there was a man named John Todd. I can say that because he's dead now. But he went around telling people that Maranatha Music was started when my father received a check from the Illuminati. There were more conspiracy theories about my dad, and I knew him, and he's pretty much a simple person. Straightforward. What you see is what you got. But this man went around telling people that my dad was part of the Illuminati, and he took that money, and that's why we've got those evil, wicked guitars in church now. And he actually, a little track was made, one of those comic book tracks, on my dad as, as the guy receiving the check from the Illuminati and his smile as he got the check. Oh, my mom was so mad. She was so angry. She found out that John Todd was speaking at a church in Santa Ana, and she took my cousin, and she went there. And while he began to give her testimony, she stood up. She said, that's not true. And it was packed out because everybody wants to hear something bad about a man who lits guitars in the church. My mom stands up and says, that's not true. And I know because I'm the wife of Chuck Smith. John Todd took one look, the color drained out of his face, and he ran off the stage. My brother Chuck went running out, uh, not, sorry, my cousin Chuck went running out the back door, confronted John Todd, and this guy pulled a gun on my cousin and said, get away from me or I'll shoot. And he got in the, and my cousin said, okay, okay, no problem, no problem. I don't, my cousin said he didn't even know why he ran around. It was just instinct, like, oh, let's catch him. And my mom began to just tell the testimony then to the whole church of what Jesus had really done. I mean, crazy. But you know what? People love conspiracy theories. But it says these are useless wranglings. They're worse than unprofitable. They're, they're, and those who oppose in actuality, this is what Paul says, them, they have corrupt minds. In other words, they just... You know, to the pure, all things are pure. Um, Paul will say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are bent and defiled, nothing is pure. They're always looking for the ulterior motives. Why are you giving me this? Why are you smiling at me? Why are you being nice? They, 
Everything's impure. It says they're destitute or missing the truth. They don't really care about truth. In fact, truth is inconvenient. Have you ever tried to talk to someone and tell them the truth and they didn't want to hear it? They liked believing the lie that they had rather than the truth. And these people suppose and teach that godliness means gain. It's a way to get all my rights. Godliness is a way to enhance my life. Godliness is a way to get rich. Paul says from such, here's the remedy, withdraw yourself. Withdraw, just stay away. Why? Because these attitudes are infectious. Have you ever been with a competitive person? I'm not a competitive person. You can be with me, you're safe. But I've been with competitive people like, oh, my daughter is so much better than your daughter. And you're like, and, and what you do is you're like, you don't go, well, my daughter, you know, she belongs to the 4-H club. Or, you know, you don't, my daughter didn't. But you don't, you don't like tend to want to compete, but you find yourself very defensive. Ever have that? All of a sudden, you're going, my daughter's wonderful. Shut up. You know, you're just, you find yourself on the defensive, and you're, you're so um, uptight. You're not competing. You're just trying to say, I love my daughter. Stop doing this. But those competitive people, you know, they're, they're, they're finding like a barb at everything and trying to get you to enter in and say, well, and compete. It's infectious. But also, fear is infectious. You know, like, they're like, oh, you better get guns. You better do this. You, yeah, the government's coming in. You don't know. Your rights are going away. Your taxes are rising. Here, you better save yourself. Save yourself. And fear is infectious. You're like, what are we doing to save ourselves? You know, what are we doing? You know, do we have an alarm? Do we have a gun? Do we have mace? You know, do we have pepper spray? What are we doing to save ourselves? It's infectious. Fear is infectious. And we're not to be women of fear, going back to my book. We're to be women of faith. We're to believe that we have a God that loves us who is our Father in heaven. And you know, when we show that type of faith, it shines radiantly with the darkness of this culture and this world. It also, rebellion is also infectious. When somebody's mad or something, have you ever, I had this, I remember the Lord called me on it, but if I got with someone who had a bad marriage, I tried to find all the faults with Brian so that person wouldn't feel so bad about their marriage. You know what that ended up doing? Making them lose all hope that marriages could be good. And I heard the Lord saying, Cheryl, I give you a good one. I give you a good husband. You tell her that your husband is good and you talk about his virtues, she needs hope. She needs hope that there are good marriages, that I can transform her marriage. Stop it. But you know, it's infectious. That rebellion are like, oh, yeah, well, you know, Brian left his spoon on the counter. <laughs> bad man. You know what I mean? He did. But he's not a bad person. He just left his spoon on the counter because he wants to use it again. Typical man, you know? Why should I make the bed? I'm going to sleep in it tonight. Paul then goes on to talk about the right attitude towards money. And he says, the greatest gain is not by money or material goods or amassing. The greatest gain is godliness with contentment. 
It's being like Jesus and being content with being like Jesus, being at peace. It's having that attitude of love and respect of exemplifying Jesus. It's not about how much I get out of this world, but how close I can be to Jesus. When I was pregnant with my fourth child, I went to get my hair cut. And the lady took one look who was about to cut my hair at you know, my large tummy. And she said, oh, I could never have children. And I said, really, why? She says, oh my goodness, they're so expensive. I would want them to have the best clothes and the best education and the best friends to hang out with. And I, it's just too much stress. And I said, oh, I, I said, I'm, I'm not like that. And I said, this is my fourth. And she was like, wow. And I said, and my hope for my children is not that they get all they can out of this world, but they give all that they can to people. I said, I want my children to love people, to be considerate of the poor, to think about others. I'm raising my children to give something to others rather than take from others. And you know, she wasn't a Christian. She's like, oh my goodness, I have never, ever, ever thought in that way. How, how did you come up with this? And I got a chance to share. Contentment is such a statement in itself of, of who we are and our core beliefs. I want you to listen to this from the message. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me out in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, I'm not afraid when you walk at my side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel so secure. You serve me a six, this is my favorite part, you serve me a six-course dinner, that was it, right in front of my enemies. You revive my drooping head, my cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. That's the picture of contentment. And it all hinges on the Lord as our shepherd. Paul then gives reasons to choose godliness with contentment. One is that we can't take anything we hoard into the next life. Naked I came into this world, naked I'll leave. Secondly, God supplies all we need. He's our surplus. He's our supplier. All we need to eat and wear one more story. It was Christmas coffee. Who doesn't want a new outfit for Christmas coffee when it comes around every year? I wanted a new outfit, but we were like totally broke at the time. I needed the money in the bank account to pay bills and to feed my children who were still at home. And I felt like the Lord said, I'm going to give you an outfit for Christmas coffee. I'm like, Lord, I have to be in front of people. What, what are you going to give me? 
So I just felt it like, okay, Lord. And I thanked the Lord for what he was going to give me to wear to the Christmas coffee. Just like, okay, I thank you, Lord. So my daughter, Kristen, says, Mom. She calls me on the phone. She's, she's like this. She's like Brian. But she's like, Mom, you're not going to believe it. I was walking my son, Cade, who's now 20, so you know how long ago this is. I was walking my son. I came across a garage cell from St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, and they had all these clothes. And Mom, you're not going to believe this. I bought you a St. John knit suit for $2. A St. John knit suit for $2. Do you know how much St. John costs? Like their blazers, yeah, too much, are like $2,000. Their pants are like, you know, $500 to $1,000. In my wildest dreams, never was St. John even on my radar. Ever, not even in a garage sale. She said, Mom, I got you a skirt for a dollar and I got you a blazer for a dollar. I'm bringing it over right now. I went and had them dry clean because they did come from a garage sale and I didn't know if the woman had died while wearing it. So I got it dry cleaned. I had enough money for that. And that, that Christmas coffee, that Friday morning, there I was in a St. John knit suit with Payless shoes. It was so good. But you know, he clothes us. He knows our need. Even the need, like, uh, really the Christmas coffee? That God would be that kind? That he would know? I'm not saying that, like, a St. John knit suit is required. Somebody admired it, and I said, it's yours. They thought I was so generous. But those who desire to be rich, those who make wealthy, being wealthy, their goal in life, what happens? They fall into temptations, traps. They get rutted. They can't get out once they've started. They can't stop themselves or save themselves. You know, Jesus called it the deceitfulness of riches because it looks like it's just right there. If you just work more hours, if you just, you know, leave church behind and just make those sacrifices, and then you find you never get out of it. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24, about the rich young ruler, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Or in Mark, it says, for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Riches, those who want riches, they prey on the weaknesses of others to increase their bank accounts and bring indulgences to their own lives. He calls them harmful lusts. These desires aren't just inordinate, but they're harmful to those who have them and to those that they are with. You know, it, I don't want to offend anyone, but I'm just going to say it. Remember years ago, Amway? You thought people really liked you when they invited you over for dinner, but it was just to sell you Amway? And you were like, one, I can't afford this, but this is all about Amway? You didn't really care about me as a person? Remember that, some of you? Thank you, Kathy. And Susan, I saw your head. I saw that face. I saw that. But you know, it was like there are people that are looking, how can I get rich? And it's exploitive. And it says it drowns men in destruction and judgment. Drowning happens when you're immersed in something so deeply and you can't get anything 
any air or oxygen in your lungs and it begins to fill with water, you are so immersed. Godliness and contentment is better because the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. I think about how everything that's wrong in our world, everything, can be traced back to a love of money. Think about it, prostitution, the pimp, he wants money so he'll exploit these women no matter what their age or their condition, slavery, human trafficking, drugs, you know they're harmful. They know they're harmful for people, but they don't care because they're making money, because they're enriching their lives. Marijuana, tobacco, gambling, all these things. I mean, do you think that Las Vegas is really healthy for anybody? Just saying. Money and discontent draw people away from faith in Jesus Christ because people begin to trust in their bank account rather than the Lord. They begin to trust, they begin to do the extra hours of working second job rather than trusting the Lord's supply. They begin to skip fellowship and church in order to work those extra jobs. Greed makes them stray further and further from faith in God because greed is when we try to take for ourselves and amass for ourselves. In doing so, strain and trusting in money these who desire to be rich pierce themselves through with many sorrows. The endless pursuit of money will leave you with regret. I was talking to my brother Chuck the other day, and he was saying this man came over to his house recently. And this man was complaining about all the people who had supposedly cheated him out of all this money. This guy has millions of dollars. And He's a little bit delusional, but he's so obsessed with this time that somewhere like, like over two decades, at least a decade, 10 years ago, further. On his story, my brother knows the, the people, and he says it's so ex exaggerated. It's so delusional. But this man was getting more and more worked up as he was, was talking. And my brother looked at him, and he said, how much money is enough? How much money is enough? And, and the guy didn't know what to say. He just like, looked at my brother and he goes, I don't know. He goes, don't you have enough yet? Can't you even enjoy what you, don't you have enough? Why do, why do you care? How much money is enough? And I thought, wow, what you have contrasted is my brother Chuck, who drives an imitation PT Cruiser that's broken down half the time, but he's totally content because it can fit his grandchildren. And this other man who's got all this wealth, huge house, money in the bank, drives a really nice car, and it's not enough. He's pierced himself with so many sorrows. He lets these things, these lies, and these you know, things that happened two decades ago still pierce him through and make him angry. Paul will continue in chapter 6. And what he'll do is he'll begin to contrast those who love money, the opposition, with who Timothy is to be in light of the culture and time. And he'll say, but you, O man of God, 
there's a different life that we're to have. Godly lives are meant to be in contrast to society. We're meant to be standouts. We're meant to be smiling when everybody's all angry that there's a long line. We're meant to just smile. One more story. I'll end with this. I promise, I promise. I'm at, um, there's, I'm in New York, and I'm with my two daughters. <laughs> Look how I make them how so short. They're so short. I'm with my two daughters, and we're in line at uh, Dean and DeLuca, which doesn't even exist anymore. We've got our trays where you take it, and this one lady who's behind the counter, she's like, you know, move it, move it. And I look, and there's no way to move. It's a crowd be- in front of me, a crowd behind me. I mean, you can't move. And I just smile, like, can't move. And she looks at me, she says, you wipe that smile off your face, or I'm going to jump over this counter and wipe it off for you. And I remember, like, laughing. I started laughing, and I was smiling more, and Kristen and Kelsey are like, Mom, stop it, stop it. I'm like, I can't help it. When I get nervous, I smile and laugh. And so the more she yelled at me, the more I smiled. She's getting so irate. But I'm thinking, she's an employee. She's going to lose her job if she jumps over this. And she was short, so I was like, and I can take her. But anyway, it was just like, you know, by contrast, this woman who's so worked up, so upset, so like, ah, you're smiling. And here I am just like, (laughs) 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 sorry, I try not to really hard, but I can't stop. And everyone in line's looking at me, and I'm like, I'm not doing this on purpose. I just, (laughs) but I was contrasted, right? with all the people who couldn't move any direction and with this lady who's getting more and more irate for one single reason, I had the audacity to smile. I had the audacity to be happy. With a long line and a lot of people all trying to get food, a lot of hungry people, I had the audacity to look different, to smile, to be happy. May we have the audacity in this culture, to be like Jesus. May we have the audacity to stand out for our love and our respect and for the truth and for the words of Jesus. May we have the audacity to make God our shepherd so we do not want what they want, so we do not go the direction that they go. May we have that audacity to live such godly lives with all the change, with all the craziness, with all the ungodliness around us. May we not be participants in that or reactors to that, but may we have that vertical relationship with the Lord, so sure that we walk every day in the presence of our Father who absolutely adores us because of Jesus Christ, that we look like Jesus no matter what's going on and we act like Jesus. We live in a powder keg culture and we need to every day make sure that our relationship with Jesus 
is exactly how it should be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would enable us to look like Jesus, act like Jesus, speak like Jesus in the midst of all the craziness, all the slander, all the conspiracy theories, all the wickedness, all the exploitation. May we be so contented with the presence of Jesus that we are able to bring many to Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.